0: You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. Uh, welcome. It is an honor, as always, to be here with you guys. If you don't know me, my name is Tamarcus Raglin. I'm uh, the young adult minister here at Citizens Church. And uh, this morning, I get the awesome privilege Uh, to bring home our final week in the book of Titus. Uh, Can you believe it? A series coming to an end already. Um, (laughs) Thus far uh, in our book, we've been able to see um, that Paul is adamantly charging uh, Titus, this young pastor in a place called Crete, to raise up uh, godly leaders um, and elders who would be able to declare the truth of the gospel, not only um, with their words, but also that they might adorn that truth with their very lives. Um, and by doing so, Paul says that this will uh, bring order to things there, not just in the church and in their homes, but also in the community at large in Crete. And he has made clear this goal from the very first verse of the letter. He wrote, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Christ, for the faith of God's elect And their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. See, Paul aligns the heart of this letter with the very purpose of his calling as a minister of the gospel. If you missed last week, we were uh, walking through uh, Titus 3 and we situated it within the context of the broader letter. And Paul's message to the church that if they were going to uh, be able to make change and influence the community around them, that it would not come by assuming a posture of aggression uh, where they would uh, constantly uh, fight and battle and argumentation with those around them, nor would it come from assuming a posture of apathy where they just kind of remove themselves from the problem and needs of those around them. But rather, as the gospel tuned their eyes so that they might see people as Christ does, that they would actively extend grace and mercy to those around them with their lives. So then it is no wonder that as Paul closes out this letter uh, to Titus and his church, that he instructs them to insist on the gospel just as he does himself. So this morning, our goal is no different. If we are going to be believers who are ready for every good work, as Paul has charged us to be, it begins with us getting the gospel right. Then God's transforming power uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit can be perfected within us. Uh, I want to take a moment to paint a picture uh, of of where all of this is, is going for us um, and it is ultimately one of our hopes for studying the book of Titus after our Wisdom and Wonder series. Uh, if you've never read C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, I highly recommend it. Um, this is where this comes from. But he uh, basically in the story, he gives this uh, this allegory of heaven and hell. Uh, hell or the gray city, as he calls it, is described as being this like transparent and weightless place. Uh, this is the very definition of heaven as we learned in the Wisdom and Wonder. And everything there is thin and it's empty, and even the people are kind of uh, shadows of themselves. They're described as kind of deteriorating from what they were always created and meant to be. And conversely, uh, heaven is this beautiful, bright, and and heavy place uh, that bears weight. The people there are referred to as the solid people. Those who have not only been rescued from the gray city, but have been made new in preparation for the heavenly city. In fact, it's even described as being kind of uncomfortable for those whose uh, bodies and appetites haven't been attuned for uh, heaven's environment. And what you encounter time and time again in this uh, beautiful work, um, in, the, in the features of heaven and the people that are there, you see this, this fullness um, that they embody. And that this, uh, the, the work that they even participate in in heaven didn't just start once they got there, but God began that work even while they were still on earth. And day by day, as the Spirit transformed them more and more into the image of God, they became more of who they were always created to be, which is more like their Savior himself. And it is this kind of transformation and newness of life that we'll see in our text today. It is a work of Christ in the life of the believer that by nature changes our very being and equips us to be ready for every good work. If you are taking notes this morning, our big idea is simple. The born again bear fruit. Those who are born again bear fruit. Because to be saved by Christ is to be changed by him. And to be changed by him is to become like him. This is, this is the, uh, the ultimate goal of where everything is moving towards. And good works comes as a fruit of being changed. And so part of what we're going to see in our text today is there, there are two ways to get at good works that aren't motivated by uh, the gospel and God's mercy and grace, as we'll see in the text. And we'll outline both of those, the first of which is legalism. The second is license, a kind of of life that thinks that we can be uh, saved by Christ without being changed by him. And then lastly, what Paul promotes us to uh, assume is a life that is devoted to good works and that is found to be fruitful. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to start in Titus 3 and verses 4 through 5. If not, it'll be on the screen behind me. Paul writes, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior appeared. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. Remember, this is coming on the other end of where we left off last week. Paul instructed us to be gentle with a kind of meekness of heart towards those around us because we too used to be foolish and disobedient without grace and mercy in this world and then God showed up. The Bible says that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus himself, took on flesh, died on a cross, and because of that, those who trust in him might be saved. And he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. And here's where Paul begins to refute this false teaching of legalism. You see, legalism, rather than insisting on the work of Christ insists on the works of man as being um, effective and efficient towards salvation. The problem with legalism is this. It diminishes the work of Christ's atonement by insisting that human effort can merit salvation, that salvation can be earned. Six times in the letter, Paul references good works that we are to be devoted to as believers. But to be sure we aren't tempted uh, to lean into this kind of misconception, he makes a distinction between the good works which we are called to walk in and the works of righteousness that are done by Christ and Christ alone that are able to bring about salvation. He writes similarly in Galatians 2.14, a person is not justified by works of the law but by faith in Christ because legalism centers the work of man rather than the work of Christ. Those who are swayed by its teachings can have an unhealthy relationship with good works. It can breed a kind of judgmental and critical spirit that lays unnecessary burdens on themselves and on those around them. But Paul makes it clear that works done in righteousness are uh, are not for us to accomplish, but rather have already been accomplished on our behalf. It's just as we uh, sang a moment ago, right, that we are fighting a battle that has already been won. Christ has already gone before us in this way. And so Paul goes on to say in the rest of uh, 5 and 6, He saved us not because of works done in righteousness by us, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Paul says salvation is in accordance with Christ's mercy, and if it is according to his mercy, it cannot be according to our merit. So it is by the undeserved mercy of God that he gives those who belong to him new life by the washing of regeneration. Now, regeneration is a $10 uh, theological term that essentially means rebirth, rebirth. And this is uh, what must take place for every believer in, under, in order for them to be able to enter into heaven. It's what C.S. Lewis describes in The Great Divorce, the, the thing that must first take place before a person is, uh, is ready and suitable for the environment of heaven. It's also what Jesus described when he was speaking to uh, Nicodemus, the Pharisee. And he told him that in order for anyone to enter into the kingdom, they must be born again. It is through the washing of regeneration that God transforms us into a new creation, enabling us to respond to the truth of the gospel and to walk into the newness of life and the good works that he's called us to. It's God's way of restoring his image within us and therefore uh, giving back to us our humanity, which was lost and marred by sin. There's an old book written by a church father named Athanasius called On the Incarnation. Uh, It's one of my favorite reads during uh, the Advent season because he just beautifully explains um, the the necessity that Jesus uh, come in the flesh in order to rescue us from sin and death. He writes this. He says, what was God to do in the face of this dehumanizing of mankind? What else could he possibly do being God but renew his image in mankind so that through it men might once more come to know him? And how could this be done save by the coming of the very image himself, our Savior, Jesus Christ? Men could not have done it for they are only made after the image, nor could angels have done it for they are not the images of God. The word of God came in his own person because it was he alone, the image of the father, who could recreate man made after the image. In order to effect this recreation, however, he had first to do away with death and corruption. Therefore, he assumed a human body in order that in it death might once and for all be destroyed and that men might be renewed according to the image. The image of the Father alone was sufficient for this need. Christ most certainly receives us, church, as we are, but he does not leave us as we are. To be saved by Christ is to be changed by Christ because salvation is not merely an addition to the life you already have, like adding a new streaming service to your Apple TV, but salvation is a completely new life and it is the work of Christ alone. Only he is powerful enough and suitable to accomplish this within us. And it is precisely this, uh, because of this, that the error of our next point breaks down as well. So not only um, are good works uh, not the prerequisite for salvation, that is legalism, only Christ alone can do that. But salvation is not to be void of good works. For this would be to adhere to uh, this idea of license, Whereas legalism diminishes the work of Christ on the cross. License diminishes uh, the work of Christ on the cross in that it uh, takes away from what Christ is doing in and through the believer. This is the problem. This is the accusation that Paul uh, makes against the false teachers in Titus 1.16. He says that they profess to know God, but they deny him with their works. License at best views good works as optional in the life of believers. It's something that we can do when we feel like it or we want to or if it suits our lifestyle, but it's not something that we must do. At worst, we see good works as just being inconsequential at all, maybe even something to uh, be a skeptical of if people are too quick to bring it up. In fact, there are many who sometimes who adhere to this kind of uh, false, false teaching that they unduly label anyone who suggests that good works are uh, a, a, a part of the human li- uh, of the human and Christian experience as being legalists. But all they need to do is to continue to read Paul in Romans six one to see that this is not the case. You see, in the first uh, five chapter, Paul l- lays out the gospel. Uh, Plainly, And he assumes that if you understand him correctly, you'll ask uh, the question that he poses at the beginning of chapter six. He says, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? If God is as gracious and as merciful as Paul has said he is, and if salvation isn't based on our merit, but Christ alone, doesn't that mean that I can live however I want? That God will just keep forgiving me and I don't have to change in any way? But he goes on to say, absolutely not. How could we who have died to sin continue to live in it? Why would a butterfly abandon its wings to uh, resume life on the belly? It wouldn't. It's been made a a new creature. It's a, a new kind of thing. And that is exactly what Paul is alluding to in our text. He continues in verse seven. He says, so that. Being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You see that so that tells us that the mercy driven regeneration and renewal that we just read about does not terminate within itself. God doesn't just rescue us and then just leave it there. But he rescues us out of uh, the gray land or the gray town in order that we might uh, be transformed for a greater purpose. We've been made alive and imbued with power so that we might be changed by him as well. And the aim of that security and the hope is that we will become suitable heirs, ready to inherit not only the kingdom of the Father to come, but the lifestyle of Christ today. God is, 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 is recreating in us his image, and the goal of it all is for us to be made like our big brother, Jesus. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, uh, his, his hope is that we would become like ambassadors of Christ, that through us, through our lives, he might be making his plea to those around us. And as we are transformed by the uh, mercy and love of Christ on the inside, that those who encounter us um, and interact with us, that they too might be transformed by the love of Christ through us. It is having been made alive already, already washed, already saved, already adopted and engrafted into the family of God that we then walk out into this newness. This becoming a heir comes on the other side of being, right? This means salvation isn't like uh, middle school tryouts, right? I don't know if any of you ever had to try out for anything in middle school, sports, band, you pick your thing. Uh, Waiting after the tryouts to see if you made it is one of the most stressful weeks in life. If you are currently there right now, uh, I see you and Regardless of what happens, it'll be okay. I promise. It doesn't feel like it, but it will be. But it's stressful, right? Everything is, is based on your merit. Am I good enough? Am I not good enough? Am I, how do I measure up against my peers? Uh, what are they going to think if I make it? What are they going to think if I'm not going to make it right? And there's, we don't outgrow that as adults, right? We get older and we continue to have that kind of mental battle in various ways. But salvation isn't like this. Uh, Good works aren't like a kind of tryout to see if we are suitable for the kingdom, but rather it is by Christ's merit alone that our belonging in the household of God is determined. If you have been rescued by faith in Christ, you have nothing left to prove to anybody. I've been eager to share this uh, with somebody in the room this morning. Brother, sister, uh, I don't know who you are or, or who needs to hear this, but there is nothing that you can possibly do To garner more acceptance before the Father than Christ has already secured for you on the cross. If you have put your faith and your trust in Christ, when the Father looks at you, He is delighted. This isn't what good good works is about to earn the Father's delight. You are already delighted in, and it is because you are delighted in that you are called to respond to what He's done with our good works. There's a difference. So Paul goes on to say in verse eight, he says that this saying is trustworthy, pointing to the gospel. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. For these things are excellent and profitable for people. Here, Paul continues to make clear that distinction between Christ's work and the work of believers For starters, he specifically designates good works as a function of the believer. Salvation comes through faith in Christ, and so good works can't be a prerequisite because he here says that that it has to come first from those who already believe. Paul says also elsewhere in Romans 14 that everything that does not come from faith is sin. Therefore, good works are essentially a product of faith in God, and, and faith in God must come before we can walk into those works as God has called us to. Paul says these kinds of works are not only good, right the proper function of our humanity, but they are also profitable. They bear fruit in the life of the believer and those around them. These things aren't hevel, they're not empty but rather they have uh, eternal ramifications. And it is by insisting on the gospel of Christ that these kinds of works result out of the life of the believer. But he also warns Titus, right, that there's a, there's a danger in all of this, this work talk. He says, avoid the foolish controversies and the genealogies and dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless, that's for a person who stirs up this kind of division after warning them once and then twice have nothing more to do with them, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So we talked a little bit about this last week in regards to uh, church discipline, but here uh, I want to talk about like the, the kind of uh, person or the kind of uh, posture that he's painting here. I like to call these are the, the fruit inspectors, right? Uh, this is, this is uh, notably going to be the, the, the Pharisees and the religious elite, uh, the Jews who would have been super critical in laying the, the burden of their, their Jewish culture and, and ideas on the Gentile believers around them. Uh, we see this because he says that they love to in, insist and argue about and, and, and fight about things pertaining to works of the law. And this is, is uh, opposite of what Christ is calling us to, because in the kingdom there's only one true uh, fruit inspector. His name is Jesus. But luckily for us, Jesus has warned us uh, and, and steered us away from this fraudulent uh, fruit inspector life, and we get to see a picture of that in Luke 18. He gives a, a story of two individuals who go to the temple to pray. He says one is a tax collector and one is a Pharisee. The first man, the tax collector, says he comes to the temple and he's humble before God. He beats his chest and he has tears in his eyes and his head is bowed low and his prayer is simple but powerful. He just says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. He recognizes his uh, inability to, to merit salvation in God's favor on his own. But unlike him, there's also the Pharisee who goes to the temple to pray, and the Pharisee, you know, he stands up tall and has his chest out and his chin high, confident, but not for the right reasons, right? And he prays, dear God, I thank you that I'm just not like, you know, those other kind of people, like this guy who sins and, you know, doesn't do what you say. I I follow the law perfectly and live a pretty good life, and yeah, it's been pretty nice. You're welcome. Amen, right? And he's just... the the pride of the Pharisee. But the, the story turns for his audience because Jesus says, I tell you that the first man, the tax collector, he walked away justified. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. And friends, just as we are ready to turn to look at what the life devoted to fruitfulness and good works looks like, there's an important truth about the fruitful life that is tucked away in what we just read. That confession and repentance are both good works that are a part of the good life. Least we proceed, confusing being devoted to good works is meaning that we uh, go forward in some kind of perfectionism. Uh, We see here from the very mouth of our Savior that pleading for, trusting in, and depending on the mercy of God is an essential good work in the life of the believer, and it is most certainly done in faith. In fact, it is the good work that precedes all other good works. And so we humble ourselves before God and, and uh, seek his mercy. And it is in doing that that we are changed and then enabled to respond. And so I love the way uh, Paul uh, begins to wrap up his letter. Verse 12, he says, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you and greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. The life devoted to good works, right? Faith driven obedience. This fruitful life is pictured here in in a subtle way. And it is having been rescued and changed by Christ that we are invited to do the same. All right. So unlike the, the, the former stances that either sees good works as a thing that earns salvation for us or rather seeing salvation as something that negates good works in the life of believers. Good works, according to the Bible, are those works which are done in faith, having been saved for the sake of the kingdom. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul tells Timothy, another young pastor, something very similar to what he's described throughout this chapter uh, to Titus. But instead of using the language of being devoted to good works, he charges him to be trained in godliness. And this idea unites um, belief in God and our good works together. He tells him, he says, uh, that this kind of training, he uh, likens it to bodily training, but says it is, it, is, it is way better. He says, for bodily training has benefits for this life alone, so it's of, of some good. But he says, training in godliness is of greater good because not only does it have benefits for this life, but for the life to come. Its benefits are not extinguished at death. It is not a, a kind of benefit that is, that is like the Hevel that once um, all things are said and done that it just kind of passes away, but it lasts and it abounds and it bears more fruit. Thus, good works are deeds that are done in faith that have benefits in this life for us and for those around us, but also in the life to come and are eternally significant, even if people don't think so now, even if the world doesn't acknowledge it now. And Paul has, has made mention of, uh, of a plethora of ways of what these good works look like in our life in the first two chapters, right? As we look through over the past few weeks, it looks like uh, all the things that uh, being an elder or being, uh, having the elder lifestyle looks like, of being above reproach and being hospitable and self-controlled and mining our tongue and keeping up, Our household, being faithful spouses if we're married, and being um, God-honoring friends, and kind, and all of these other descriptors. These are the results of a life that have been first changed by the gospel, and devoting ourselves to these things is how we get to, it is an opportunity, that we get to respond to Christ and what he has already done, and participate what he is still doing in the world today. As Dallas Willard would say, the gospel is opposed to earning, not effort. What we described earlier in legalism, that is what it looks like to earn salvation, but devoting ourselves to good works in this way that Paul describes is not to earn salvation, but it is a way that we supply effort to what has already been done, an effort of, that, that stems from gratitude um, and unity of vision and purpose with what Christ is accomplishing in the world around us. And we get to walk in these things by the power of God's spirit at work within us. So when Paul signs off his letter mentioning uh, these four co-laborers of his, uh, we get to see this glimpse of, of, of individuals, right? Two of these individuals, we know a little about two of them. We know nothing more about them than what's listed here. But what we can be sure from what's listed here is that they were useful to Paul's ministry because they were first rescued by the gospel and the gospel changed their lives and they devoted themselves to being um, uh, fruitful and, and good workers uh, for the sake of the kingdom and the gospel. They may not have names that ring out on earth today, but their names uh, carry weight in heaven and are thus uh, written down in the scriptures themselves. Uh in the book I mentioned earlier, C.S. Lewis uh, uh, tells of this encounter that his his main character has in heaven with one of the person, one of the solid people that he meets, and uh, it's this woman who is uh, beautifully adorned with the, the the garments of heaven, and who is accompanied by these uh, angelic creatures who are uh, like casting uh, petals before her as she walks, and he's you know it's such a majestic scene that he thinks that he's you know sees Mary, and so he. You know, it's kind of stammering, and it's like, is this, is this? And his guide says, no, that's It's not who you think it is. In fact, you probably don't know who she is at all. Um, she wasn't anybody of particular uh, importance on earth. Her name's Sarah Smith, but she was a, a godly woman who lived a life of ordinary obedience. She was a faithful spouse. She was a, a loving mom. You know, not a perfect parent, but a parent nonetheless. Uh, She loved those who she encountered. It it said that any any young man or any young woman that uh, got into her sphere became to her uh, like a son or a daughter and that, that the, the, the women that she encountered were blessed because of her. And even the, the men that she met, it said that they, um, that they loved her in a way that was not unhealthy for them. For those who were married, it made them uh, love their spouses uh, even more. And for those who weren't, uh, it, it proved to be a, a friendship that was full of, uh, of, of purity and love. It's this, this beautiful picture of an ordinary life from heaven's perspective. And what what was would otherwise go unnoticed on earth and maybe even seem of little repute on earth in heaven, we see this picture um, in this in this promise that God sees and God is pleased in what was done, even if nobody else does. And the, the beautiful part is that we get the opportunity as those who have been rescued by Christ not just to to enjoy being rescued from uh, the gray city, but that we get to participate now as we are being prepared for glory and walking in this newness of life that we too might live ordinary Christian lives that may not give us much repute here on earth, but that magnifies the name of our Father in heaven, knowing that he is pleased and that the things that we do now, though unnoticed by men, are not unnoticed by God, and they have eternal value. This is what it means to live a life devoted to good works, not to earn God's favor, but to respond in God's favor with obedience. I just want to address um, everyone in the room for a moment. If you are here and you're not already a believer in Jesus Christ, maybe you're still trying to figure out uh, what you believe about Jesus or how to uh, respond to what you've heard about him. And maybe maybe by God's goodness and his grace this morning, um, something has, has struck you, uh, that there is a, a, a sense in which uh, the life that you've lived apart from him, you see the holes in it and you um, are, are feeling the invitation Uh, to to know more about him and to maybe even uh, start a relationship with him. Uh, And I just want to encourage you. uh, You know, it can seem overwhelming and there seems like there's a lot to to do and to know and to learn. And I just want you to be encouraged in knowing that the the best place to start uh, is by adopting the prayer of the tax collector. Before we start trying to to white-knuckle it and and manufacture good works on our own, first we need to acknowledge our need that we would uh, bow our heads um, and look to Christ with, with humble hearts and ask him for mercy. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Again, because this is the good work that precedes every other good work. Likewise, if you're a believer in the room, we're no different. I don't know what season you might find yourself in right now. Maybe you've uh, abandoned your wings, so to speak, and returned to life on the belly in some way, right? Some previous uh, sinful way of living, or maybe you've just been idle and uh, not actively engaged in what Christ is doing uh, in the world, and, and, and you feel the, uh, the, the, the shame and the guilt from that invitation to us as believers is is no different. We too are invited to adopt the prayer of the tax collector that we would uh, beat our chests and bow our hearts and ask God that he would be merciful to us, for we're sinners. You see, all of us need first to cling to the cross of Christ this morning if we have any hope to be able to live out the life that he's empowered us to. It always begins with Christ's mercy and what he's done. That's why Paul ends his letter the way he does. My prayer for us this morning is that we uh, all cling to Christ, uh, uh, seeking his mercy and receiving his grace and love, that, that by that we would be changed and that he would uh, work on the inside of us by the power of the Spirit and remove our heavy ways from us and prepare us to enter into the heavenly city uh, that is to come. But that we wouldn't just wait for that day, but we would currently, right now, participate in what God is doing in the world by devoting ourselves to good works for the sake of those around us. Let us pray. Lord, I just want to echo that that prayer, Lord God, on our behalf. My own behalf, Lord, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? Or at least anyone uh, think that I stand up here, some expert Christian who uh, has surpassed the need of mercy, Lord? Even, even the preacher of God's word, even the, the the minister, the those who are preparing to lead us in worship, Lord God, all of us our need of your mercy, and it is by your mercy and by your grace alone, Lord God, that we are uh, have, any, have any hope of being justified before you, Lord. And Lord, that uh, when we are justified, Lord, you don't just uh, leave us there and walk away, but the work has only begun, Lord, that you are day after day renewing us with patience and kindness, none the least, Lord God, but conforming us into the image of your son, that we might uh, reflect his goodness and reflect his love to those around us, that those who encounter us would uh, uh, just experience a little bit more of Jesus because of the work that he is doing in and through us. That as we walk in obedience, as we respond uh, with a faith-driven effort to the uh, work of the gospel in our lives, that those who are already believers around us, Lord, they just find it easier to love Jesus when they're with you. That we'd be the kind of people that, uh, that 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 encourage confession, that that make it safe, a safe place to to repent, Lord. That are that are eager to encourage, that are uh, eager to serve, that that are, uh, as Paul says, ready to meet every urgent need. Not for self. Not for fame on earth. But because we have been recipients of that kind of love. And it is our, our, our heart's desire to reciprocate it to those around us for the sake of the kingdom. Lord, we love you. Senior in your son Jesus Christ's name we pray.